every week to prepare to write a sermon, I have a very specific process that I go through. I read the scripture that will be the the content. I read the scripture through in the New International Version, the NIV translation, which is the, the translation that we have in the pews. And I take notes as I'm reading through this, interesting thoughts that that pop into my mind, questions I have that come to mind, that kind of thing. Then I read the same scripture in five other English translations. And the more similar the translations are, the more straightforward I know than the original is. If the translations are really different, it means that there's some um, odd language in the original, or there's some odd or difficult grammar. So after I've read those, uh, then I read the uh, scripture in the original language it was written, uh, Greek or Hebrew. In this case, for this morning, Greek. And then I mull it over for at least a day. And I try to understand what it might have meant for the original receivers of the scripture and what God might be trying to say to us through it here and now in this congregation. After all of that, I read through multiple commentaries written by other people who have studied these same specific scriptures. I read the commentaries because I want to check on my own interpretation and understanding. I figure that if I hear something that no one else has ever heard in the history of this interpretation, it might be time for me to go on a vacation. Well, I will admit that this week, it might be a good thing that I have some time off after Christmas because it was very close For this sermon series on the gospel according to Mark, I have nine different commentaries that I consult regularly, and they cover writers from Tertullian of Carthage in 2nd century AD all the way to a guy from down the hill at SPU, Bill Lane. And out of those nine, only one other writer but at least there was the one, only one other writer, a professor from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, bothered to even comment on the thing that jumped off of the page for me. His name is Douglas Hare, and I'm wondering if maybe you just have to be named Doug to catch this piece. The part in this morning's text that leapt off the page for me, and at least this other Doug noticed, is verse 37. Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me or me alone, but the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes God. Now, This is not a difficult passage to translate. There are not any particularly ambiguous or difficult words to translate with meanings. Uh, The the grammar is very straightforward. Most of the English translations are very similar. 
So what Jesus says is very clear. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones, a child in my name, welcomes me. Welcomes not just me, welcomes God. This to me is astonishing. Most of the writers focus on the conversation and the situation that leads up to these words of Jesus, but not these words of Jesus themselves. And that leads most of the writers to conclude that this whole scene is essentially a parable about humility and service versus pride and power. But I think Jesus reveals something far bigger than that alone. I think Jesus is asking us to look at the world in an entirely new way. Yes, certainly there is an aspect of all of this that encourages adults to be humble. In the scene just before this, Jesus has finally admitted to the the followers that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the, the Lord of God's people. And that in that role, he was going to be arrested and executed by the authorities. And then three days later, he would rise to new life. Well, the disciples completely skipped over that whole arrest and execution part. And, but they heard the Messiah part, the Lord. Oh, wonderful. And so some of them started arguing over essentially who deserves the best cabinet position in Jesus's administration. They thought they were being subtle and quiet enough that Jesus didn't notice. But we heard at the beginning of this story, they get to Capernaum when they're in the house, Jesus asks them, so what were you arguing about back there? And they are sheepish because they know they were out of line and they don't say anything. And Mark says, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And to the credit of most of the commentaries I read, Jesus's first response is essentially about humility, how humility defines greatness for adults in relationship to God. Sitting down, which is the the posture of of teacher uh, in the time Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, they must be the very last and the servant of all. And right after that, Jesus took a little child and had him stand among them. That's the point at which most of the commentators seem to stop and, and kind of make an assumption about what it says from there on. They seem to think that Jesus puts this little child before them as kind of an object lesson, as if Jesus is saying, be like this little child. And Jesus actually did say that and did that very thing, used a child to be an object lesson for humility and said that to be like this child. But that was a different time. In fact, Mark tells that exact story with those exact words in the very next chapter. But Jesus is after something entirely different here. His words are radically different here than be like this child. Specifically, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and not 
just me welcomes God. This is mind-boggling. It's as altering of our perceptions as that part I was alluding to in the children's message about when Matthew says, in Matthew, excuse me, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says that anytime we give food to someone who is hungry or shelter someone who is homeless or uh, visit someone who is in prison or ill, we are doing those things to Jesus himself. That's the only other thing that comes anywhere close to what Jesus is saying here. In this morning's scripture, Jesus is saying this about children as a whole. Whenever we open our lives to a child, whenever we care for children, we are opening our lives and caring for Jesus, for Christ. Jesus was challenging his disciples here, and he's challenging us now to view the world entirely differently than most adults throughout time. Children were completely without status or importance in the culture in the moment that this occurred. They added nothing of value to the adult world other than male children, the first male child particularly, continuing the family line. And really, that was only significant to a handful of powerful families. In fact, most of the time when children show up in the Gospels at all, the disciples are trying to shoo them away and and their parents telling, telling their parents to take them away. Don't you know the Messiah's busy? He's got things to do. And Jesus has none of that ever. For Jesus, in many ways, children represent here and now the kingdom on earth. Everything that most of the adult world has valued throughout throughout history is backward or upside down. Strength, power, dominance, accumulation of wealth and goods, fame. This is what adults expect of a kingdom. This is the realm in which we would expect to find a king among those with strength, power, dominance, accumulated goods, fame. And we expect that the greatest king would have the most of all of these things. But here in this morning scripture, Jesus completely challenges us to a whole new view of the world. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is what we celebrate five days from now. Our Lord and Savior the Savior and the Lord of all creation was birthed in flesh and blood as an actual baby in a place where animals slept and ate. He was tiny, naked, puckered, 
covered with fluids. He cried and nursed and slept in his mother's arms. The writer Madeline Lengel captures the perception-altering truth of it all in her poem, Like Every Newborn. She starts with an epigram that, again, contrasts what we would think with what we get. Like every newborn, quote from Psalm 93, verse 1, The Lord is king and hath put on glorious apparel. The Lord hath put on his apparel and girded himself with strength. Like every newborn, he has come from very far. His eyes are closed against the brilliance of the star. So glorious is he, he goes to this immoderate length to show his love for us, discarding power and strength. Girded for war, humility, his mighty dress, he moves into the battle wholly weaponless. This changes our whole view of the world and how it ought to be. Listen again to that vision that God gave to Isaiah centuries before Jesus was actually born. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy, uh, for as in the day similar to, as just like in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's battle used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What will cause all of this? What will bring an end to oppression and the end of war always? For to us a child is born. That's it. A child is born. How can the birth of a child end war and oppression? Jürgen Moltmann is a, uh, was a German theologian who um, had been a part of the German Air Force um, and then uh, but was, was so conflicted about all that was happening and all that Germany was doing that he knew of, at least, that at the sign of his uh, first allied soldier, he surrendered himself. And so he spent years in uh, allied prisoner of war camps. He became a, a great voice for a theology of peace and hope. He writes, after Isaiah's mighty vision of destruction of all power and the forceful annihilation of all coercion, we are now suddenly face to face with this inconspicuous child. It sounds so paradoxical that some interpreters have assumed that this is a later addition, that this wasn't originally a part of Isaiah's vision. The prisoners who have to fight for their rights also find it difficult to understand how this child can help them. But it is really quite logical. For what the prophet says about the eternal peace of God, which satisfies our longings, can only come to meet us, whether we are frightened slaves or aggressive masters in the form of the child. A child is defenseless. 
A child is innocent. A child is the beginning of a new life. The child's defenselessness makes our armament superfluous. We can put away the rifles and open our clenched fists. His innocence redeems us from the curse of the evil act that is bound to breed ever more evil. We no longer have to go on like this. His, and his birth opens up for us the future of a life in peace that is different from all life before, since that life was bound up with death. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government is upon his shoulders. The liberator becomes a pleading child in our world, armed to the teeth as it is. And this child will become the liberator for the new world of peace. This is why his rule means life, not death, peace, not war, freedom, not oppression. This sovereignty lies on the defenselessness, innocent, and hopeful shoulders of this child. As we contemplate this morning scripture, when Jesus takes a little child, first of all, Jesus had already welcomed, clearly welcomed little children into his midst because there was one right there that was ready to go. And he embraced this child and said, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. It seems to me that as we contemplate this, how we treat children, us adults, reveals a great deal about how ready we are for the reign of God in our lives. Do we open our lives to children? Not just our own, but to all children. Do we care? Do we do what we are able to do for children in our world? Or do we ignore them? Not even think of them or worse, tear them from their mother's arms and put them in cages. Jesus' words are both invitation and warning. Whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. And the opposite is true. In the end, God shows us the way to love in the way that God loves us. To God, we ourselves are children. That's what John proclaimed in that letter. How great is the love that God has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know this is that they didn't know him. But dear friends, we are now children of God. What we will be in full has not yet been made known, but when... But we know that when Christ appears again, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God has given us the greatest gift anyone can ever hope to receive. This is what we celebrate in five days. This is from Elizabeth Rooney. Christmas means gifts. In the wide, wheeling universe, there has been only one. One gift once given, one infinite, eternal, perfect joy, one baby boy. Let us welcome the child. Amen.